Hello, and welcome back to the Inquisitor podcast with me, Marcus Kauke. And once again, I have a returning guest, though he didn't learn his lesson the last time, Paul Lloyd. Paul, welcome. Good morning. Thanks for having me. (laughs) Uh, It's a pleasure. Uh, Paul, today I want to talk to you about your experience at one of your previous companies, ClearSwift. I know that you did something that's very close to my heart. And I'd like people to hear that story and what the impact was. So if you wouldn't mind, set the scene. What was the partner channel like when you arrived? ClearSwift had had a checkered history with the channel. But what they, the, the day that I joined them, they had two, 378 registered resellers and they all had some customers. So some of them had lots of customers, some of them would only have four or five clients where they've, over the years, somebody said, we want to buy Clear Swift, and they'll go, yeah, 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 we can do that. And of those, of those resellers, the vast majority were simply doing renewals. So it was an annual renewable license. They were doing annual renew, annual renewals, and a lot of them were actually trying to sell competitive products because whilst the annual renewable license is is nice, clearly it's only a fraction of the value of a brand new sale. So a lot of the resellers would actually go in and try and sell a competitive product because they made more money out of selling a competitive product as opposed to doing a renewal. From the customer's perspective, were they, did they find that they were being churned every two or three years then from one product to the next? ClearSwift had 17,000 customers in the UK and they'd already lost... When I joined, they'd already lost a lot because, as I said, there was a fair amount of history. But very, very few, if any, of the, the partners that they had were actually selling new, new installs. It was just simply churning the, you know, the annual renewal. So it's 11 months, Mr. Customer. You, know, you, you renewal this year's three and six months. Or more prevalent was just simply going in with new products. Because you know they'd make twenty percent of a of a new sale as opposed to fifteen percent of a much smaller sale. So, did it feel from the customer's point of view like every eleven months there was a, a new drive-by shooting happening? Yes, very much so. Like all vendors, I mean, essentially what I had was I had I had a distributor to account manager, I had channel account managers, and I had high touch and user sales and a renewals team as it happened. But we had all of that structure sitting behind the channel who were, for all intents and purpose, supposed to be doing a lot of that. So how many heads was that? 30. 30. Okay. So, Paul, what was your genius moment? So, essentially, I took a look at where we're at. I mean, clearly, we wanted to grow the business. And it hadn't grown for a couple of years because of the history. So we wanted to grow the business. Because I understand how the channel works and I'd worked in a channel partner, both large and small to some extent, then I looked at it and said, first and foremost, I get no orders that I don't know about. So because we've got this team, we've got high touch, we've got renewal, and we've got sort of account managers for the channel and distribution, distributors were just literally processing the orders. I'm, there was nothing that they could ever tell me. They were adding no value in absolute terms. Yep. And when we looked at, at the landscape, say we've got these hundreds of partners who were largely taking the mick. So we sat down and just 
analyzed it and said, right, what we need is we need a new tier of partner. Doesn't matter what we called it. In actual fact, we called it the uh, probably platinum. I mean, it should have been the million, you know, the million dollar club. But right. and we went, went, I actually went around the top 20 partners by volume and said to them, do you want to deal with us or not? And that's, you know, to a large extent to my style. And sat down and discussed what we were going to do for them. And what we were going to do was take a percentage of them direct, call it a new tier. I wanted them to commit to doing a million pounds a year, which was significantly more than they were doing at the moment. But because of the rules around the channel, or because of the competitive rules within Europe largely, you can't sort of, you've got to have some rules in place so that people can, everybody can join the club as they meet the rules. So because of the way that I understand it being the Treaty of Rome, you cannot refuse anybody entry to any tier of, of a channel programme, but you have to have a set of rules. So you know, the rules, the, the primary rule was that they had to commit to doing a million pounds of revenue within, within a year, and that, that gives them access to the club. What I did with the people that we wanted to join was to say that I wanted them tracking at a million pounds a year in quarter three. So essentially in quarter three, they were targeted at 250K and then and each month after that. So it gave them an easy lead in. I went, as I said, I went round, I spoke to all of them personally that all had sort of history with Clear Swift. And the message was simple. You know, we're going to do things differently. We're going to support you absolutely. I've got a team to support you. We want your support in doing that. Now, I can't dictate to you that we are the only products that you sell within that particular sort of sector. But I'm asking you that, you know, if somebody asks, for, you, you recommend Clear Swift in, in, in this particular instance, it would be for web and mail security. Yeah. So, you know, we had a handshake on it. And clearly, you know, as I say, we couldn't contract that because that's just not the sort of thing that happens. But and of them, we got we got eight agree, and we actually canned the largest security reseller in the UK because they didn't want to play ball. Um, you know, I went out and I met them, and it took me longer to park my car than it did have the meeting. <laughs> I walked back into the sales office and told them all that we I won't say who it is. Told them all that, as far as I was concerned, from that moment forward, they weren't a partner, and I got a round of applause. So then what we did was we went out to each one. And the, the key for me was that we weren't taking the business necessarily from distributors. So the partners themselves were allowed, if they wanted to, to buy through distributor. But the, So there's no price advantage with dealing with me. But what we did was we built, the, in my mind, the equivalent of a pay plan. So you know, each one of them had a slightly different plan in terms of generating numbers in their customer base. And based on their size, and they got rebates at the end of the month, the end of the quarter, on the basis of achieving their individual plan. How did that change the workload balance of you and your team then? Not very much at all, because we'd got channel managers anyway. So the channel managers were, were in place. What it gave them was the confidence and the level of honesty to be able to deal and really get involved. Because we took the, the top, this top tier, this millionaire's club, we took them out of distribution, so they dealt directly with us. 
then we had a direct relationship and we could support them with them. I mean, one of the rules, one of the sort of criteria was that they had to buy demo systems. So, you know, we, we did it on the basis that they had to buy a web system, they had to buy an email demo system. Now, that was a part of the commitment in some respects. So they committed to me that they would do that, and we committed to them that they could have two days telemarketing a month. It was that kind of scenario where we were valuable to each other. The, the whole essence of what I was trying to achieve was when you're selling software that costs three and six, you've got to have some sort of substance to be able to get the people to take you seriously. Because, you know, if you look at, well, any of the larger resellers, you know, to get on their top 100 suppliers, you've got to be doing an awful lot of business. And computer centers, I think their qualifying figure at the time was if they, you know, 50 million pounds a year, well, ClearSwift as a business was only 19 worldwide. So you know, we were never going to appear on their radar. But with the smaller ones, by offering them extra and helping them and supporting them, we got airtime. How did that support manifest itself? We managed a lot of the enterprise accounts that we had to them. So there was a little bit of a sorting out amongst the account base. So we sort of managed them across. One of the other things that we did, which people told me would never happen, was I went into each of them and I asked them for their account list. And I said, it was quite simple. You know, if you if you give me your, I don't want contact names and all that business, obviously. But if you give me your account list, then we've got a very long tail in terms of our accounts and we'll match them up with them. So we'll give you business amongst the account base that we have, but only on the basis that they're your customer. And, you know, they, without exception, I've got spreadsheets with their accounts on because I was being honest. There was a certain amount of authenticity in, in what I was doing, and to some extent, because I'm one of them. Now, whilst I was working for a vendor, my whole background had been working in the channel. And then we put programs together. So towards the end of the financial year for public sector, we did a public sector program where we split the public sector up amongst the, the top partners that we've got on board that were sold to public sector. So if they had no public sector presence, we didn't work with them in the public sector. Now, there was no kind of, oh, I'll have that lead, I'll have this lead. It was you know, organized, split up. We knew what each one of them did. I took them all to dinner two or three times together. So I had a large table in the IOD with you know, 15 people sitting around it, which was an interesting exercise because my, my whole thrust was there's no point in you each competing with each other because that just destroys the margin. Let's actually build the market. And the programs that we did, we sold to them. I had a channel manager for the public sector who stuck me out that there's no way they were going to pay to be a part of the program. So we designed a program that included some some marketing and some telemarketing days and a special price and these sorts of things. And you know they only paid £1,000, I think. But it was a commitment. If you want to work with us on this, it's a grand. You know? And we built very good relationships with those top partners. And the, the basic premise was that once they started making some decent money out of the products that we were selling to them, they would start talking about it in all the networking events and things. And then other people would come banging on the door. And then when they did that, obviously, we were in a position where we dictated the terms then. So you know, it's like all these things, you know, initially we were buying and then we've turned into selling and, and we've got them 
we've got them talking to us and got them working with us. And I mean, after the first, the three quarters of the eight, six were at the 250k, and the other two, we sit down and we discuss how can we improve it, or do you not want to do it anymore? But it was very much a small group that we could focus on, that we could have relationships with. They tended to be inevitably a bit bigger. There was a couple of them that were relatively small companies, but big in security. Because the big difference back then to now is that there was a security channel for intents and purpose. So whereas in this day and age, the vast majority of resellers, MSPs, what, you know, whatever they want to call themselves. On their account. Um, <laughs> no, but they, they're all doing something. They're all doing a bit of security. Whereas, you know, sort of 10 years ago, then it was a security channel. There were 250 or so security resellers who didn't do you know, the other stuff. They only did security. So how did that improve the quality of the experience for your channel managers working with a tiny handful of special forces partners as opposed to this land army of conscripts who sold your stuff when it suited them? Well, they obviously, you know, they loved it because we had a commitment from the partner that they would put our products forwards in the sector that we were in. So that was the, the, the sort of the premise. Now, if somebody rang up and wanted to buy, I can't even remember what they were at the time, Barracuda, for argument's sake, which happens to be around it still, around at the minute. But so if, then, obviously, you know, that partner would sell Barracuda if that's what they sold. But if they were looking for some sort of recommendation and when we went to market, then they knew that we would get the business. And there was no kind of lying and cheating and, all the other stuff that goes on. I mean, there are many of these channel partners that you are advised to count your fingers when you've shaken hands with them. And then when you've worked on a deal with them for months, you know, they'll turn around and go, they want an extra margin, otherwise they're going to do something else. So, you know, we didn't have any of that. Um, we, could, we could sit down, we could um, look at the account plans, we could decide on target accounts between us, and we could go out and work them all together. So given that you had these six or eight partners, how did that improve the efficiency of your planning for looking at the entire marketplace and being able to focus your attention on those opportunities you can, uh, could and would win rather than those that you could but won't? To some extent, you've just summed it up, haven't you? I mean, you know, you, you're in a position where you're working on specific deals, on specific accounts with each one of the half a dozen or so. Now, what I then did as a part of the process, was to go back to distribution and say, right, we're working with these. The plan was to have 12, but we're working with these 12. We're working with them directly. Um, the other 270 is down to you to develop. You, you know, Distribution will tell you time and again that they're there and they've got services and they add value and they can grow your market for you. So there you go. Why don't you do that with these? Because they're your market. And we gave them some incentives to build that new business and all those sorts of things. They were invariably upset because in, in their mind, I'd taken the cream. But even so, they weren't doing anything with them anyway, not proactively. So what were the growth rates within your select partners? We doubled the business through those. And some of that, I mean, some of that was moving the accounts around. So, Sorry, uh, we'd got can all I, of can the. Can I clarify? 
you doubled the amount of business they did or you did you doubled the amount of business clear swift did we doubled the amount of business that they did and we grew the business by month nine really of, of the program because of by month 18 of me being there but by month nine of the program we were 30 percent up month on month so um, and it was about two percent of the partners you managed to be 30 percent up and each of those partners had doubled their revenue through ClearSwift. Yep. Right. That's a result. It worked really, really well. And everybody that I worked with, yeah, more or less everybody that I worked with in the business, were channel, were vendor people. So, you know, the, the, one of the criticisms that I would have of vendors, notwithstanding the fact that they don't understand the market, okay. but... One of the criticisms is that the vast majority of the people that they employ haven't worked in the channel. So, you know, I went to an event the other year. I think I said last time we spoke, I went to an event the other year that I've actually got thrown out of. But I went to an event the other year where there was 104 vendors and marketing people in a room. And there was about half a dozen of them that had ever worked in the channel because they all know better than the channel. No, you know, the channel's the dirty, soggy end that does the work for them in some respects. Because I'm the only one that had actually been in the trenches, if you want to look at it like that. I could come forward with things and I could go out and communicate with the channel on a level that most vendor people can't because I understood the business. Now, I understood the decisions that you have to make when you're stuck in front of a client and they want to buy something that you can supply, but it's not really what you want to do. So did sales drop off at all with the other 365? Some of it dropped. I mean, it was dropping off anyway because many of them were trying to, as I said, sell competitive products and make more money on a a year-by-year basis. But what we also did was evaluate the market in terms of the market sizes, and we came out with a couple of small, smaller appliances. So we kind of produced an SME product, and we went to market with the smaller, or distribution went to market with the smaller partners. You know, we were winning five or 10 new customers a month when we did 65 new customers in seven or eight months. So new logo business, which is unheard of. I mean, that's, but that was, you know, right products, right market, prepared to do something to help them out. But all of my time and effort was with the people that could do the bigger numbers, obviously, because they're the ones that, that move the needle. So. Thinking then back at the lessons that you learned from this exercise, what were the principal lessons that you think other vendors should take from this experience? I think support the channel and be honest with it. So what we wouldn't do is if somebody came with a big deal and they wanted to join the club on the basis of a single order because one of their customers wanted to buy something, then we would support the the existing channel. If they were true to us in terms of they're promoting our products as the key one in that market. We supported them. And that that was absolute. And then you know, just working together with openness and honesty and being of value to each other. I think the, the key to it is, to, you know, if there's one sentence, it's being of value to each other, but real value, not, you know, perceived value. If you've actually got a channel program, respect it. Because all too often, you know, vendors will bend over backwards to just get orders in through the door and they'll shaft 
You know, they'll shaft their biggest partners if it means they get another order because it's the end of the quarter. And those sorts of things are, are difficult to handle. But if you've got the right relationships with your client base, then you can handle that. Now, where had potentially had a shortcoming was further down the track when if you've only got 12 partners, it becomes a point and obviously depends how you're backed and how you're owned. But if you're VC backed or American owned and you've, you know, you've got to keep growing, then at some point you've got a challenge with the scalability of it. But I think I treated it as running a sales team. So I knew when I needed extra and I could go to market or we can pick up people that had expressed an interest and look to add them as we went along. So, you know, I treated each, each of these top partners, I treated as if they were a salesperson, if you want, working for me, simplistically, that they had a separate target, they had a product split, they knew where they were going, and we managed it on that basis. So if you had your time again, what would you have done differently in order to ensure that you continued to build the size of that million pound club? I think, unfortunately, I wasn't allowed to, to follow it through. So essentially, we got it up and working. We were at the 18-month point, and then we had a new CEO. And um, the new CEO's view was, because he'd, he'd spent the vast majority of his time working for, I won't say who, because then the people who work out who he is, uh, <laughs> you know, he'd spent his time working for American organizations. And his basic philosophy was, the more retailers you've got, the more business you do. So, you know, we built this thing and we've pro- we'd proven that it would work. And he said, from his, for his part, he wanted two distributors and he wanted them to go out and introduce us to every one of their partners. And when they'd done that, we'll can them and then we'll find another distributor and we'll get them to introduce us to every one of their partners because the more partners we've got, the more that we're actually going to sell. Are oh, these uh, the burning bridges strategy? I've got to be honest I mean he's never worked in the channel of course but I was gobsmacked and then I mean this was all sort of what 2009 2010 and I got well we didn't get on let's just say that so um, (laughs) so I left and he he followed his strategy of let's get lots of distribution and then interestingly 18 months later he went back to what we'd done in the first instance because the whole volume thing, unless you've got a very big brand, if you're HP or you're Cisco, then of course you can start to dictate some of the market. But there aren't too many HPs and Ciscos. And if you're, you know, a small, I mean, however good you are and however good your technology is, if your numbers are small and you want visibility, the only way of doing it is to work hand in glove, you know, work together. Well, it's interesting because I've interviewed many people who are really successful in the channel and all of them, bar none, follow a strategy of work with a handful, make them supremely successful and keep developing the next generation. So they're constantly on the lookout to recruit. But what they're doing is they're building people up so that they get to be those special forces partners. and. They're always spending 50 to 70% of their time on site with their partners, helping them build pipeline, helping them midwife deals, helping them grow accounts. And the other quality that I've seen with them as well 
is that they teach them how to sell, knowing that they will also sell competitors' products. But they know that if they help them achieve their goals and objectives, then they will be loyal. And uh, I've got uh, one guy I'm thinking in mind. He's got partners he's been working with for 30 years. And whichever company he's gone to, he's been able to sign them back up again because he made them a lot of money. And he was always loyal to them. And the, you know, the, the point about being completely authentic and transparent is really key as well. So tell me this. Given the current state of the global economy and the COVID era and the fact that your international road warrior is likely to be stuck in quarantine for two weeks either end of a plane flight, what are your thoughts in terms of what this represents on a global basis for expansion and effective expansion of the channel? I think the challenge for anybody in the market today from a new business perspective is meeting people to establish the sort of rapport and relationship in the first instance. I'm not a fan of the Zoom world because I want to be in the room. Now, there's a generation issue in this, and I understand that, you know, in that I have three millennials as children, and I'm not one myself. I'm getting my um, archaeology hammer out. <laughs> so I think in terms of if you've got, I mean, we had the right sort of relationships with the partners, so that would have been a big boom in this, you know, in this environment because we could work with them when we knew what was going on and we could have brought to bear whatever we could bring to bear to help them. I think where it, where it falls down is if you want to go and sort of recruit new partners, I think that's a, I mean, I hesitate to say shaking hands because that's a step even further, but you know, it's a sort of sitting down and discussing things face to face and building an understanding. I mean, you, I used to run seven sales branches and they all, they all did around about 10 million a year and they got six, seven sales people in them. And I could walk in an office and I'd know who was working and who wasn't working and, you know, who was working because I happened to be there and who works normally and, and all these things. Because you can just sense it from the way that, that people are. And you can do the same with a reseller. Now, if I go into a reseller, you know what sort of business and how good, bad or indifferent they are. Just through, I mean, call it intuition, call it experience. And I think that's important when you're recruiting. So you know, recruiting virtually, I would see as a bit of a challenge. Now, you know, the fact that's me because and there is a generation issue. I understand it. What I would say is that you're going to have to cut your cloth according to your means. And, you know, the current environment means that you're going to have to do it through technologies like Zoom or 8x8 or Teams. And so basically suck it up. And I think what it also requires is better due diligence. You need really good pre-recruitment processes. You need to make sure that you're taking up references, that you're checking out how people stack up in the market. Before you put a ring on their finger, make sure that this is the right person to marry because the kind of relationship you have with your special forces partners is incredibly close and very intimate. They're opening up their account base. They are showing you their numbers. They are letting you train their salespeople as if they are your own. So before you make that investment, make sure you've done your due diligence and take your time. And I I think the fact that we've had to go virtual 
is it represents some different challenges. But my experience of doing business over Zoom for the last few months has actually been really good. So, I mean, I think, and I'll, I'll start to sound a little bit like a Luddite here, but I think at the moment, everybody's doing it because there is no choice. It's an artificial world in some respects. And you know, we're all accepting the fact that we can't, I mean, I actually have in the last two weeks, but we can't have visits and we can't hold hands and we can't do that sort of thing. And, but everybody's in the same boat. And so if I was sitting here with my granddaughter on my lap, then you'd tolerate that because in this world today, we've got no choice. But I think in six months' time, then, or you know, whenever, I mean, there's every chance, given the chaos at the moment, we'll be locked down again in six months. But <laughs> let's assume for a moment that in six months' time, you know, we're getting back to some semblance of normal. <laughs> You're way more optimistic than I am. <laughs> but then I think business will, dare I say, start to become a little bit more professional rather than a, the amateurist way that we're all having to do it. I'm a lone voice here because the trendy thing is that we talk about you know, virtual this and virtual that and we can all get on and we'll never have to leave our bedrooms ever again. But I think from a sales perspective, and I understand what you're saying, but as soon as you lose a deal because I turned up in their office and met them and took the order away and you did it virtually, the next time you'll turn up in their office. And so you know, there will be a move because some people will do it and other people won't. I understand what you're saying. I'm going to challenge it. And I think it really comes down to the quality of salesmanship. And whether you do it virtually, I I mean, I've made sales in Hong Kong over a crackly mobile phone line where the competitor was the incumbent. They'd raised the purchase order and he was on their doorstep. And I outsold him. And what's more, I got 56 times his fee, which cheered me up no end. So I get what you're saying, and that human relationship is really important. But I think what this, is going, what this period is going to do is it's going to sound the death knell for many road warriors because there are a lot of young, hungry, very capable SDRs coming through some of the really exceptional vendors. And I'm thinking of companies like Outreach, OutSystems, UiPath, these guys are doing a phenomenal job of pivoting to this new environment. They're working really closely with their partners. And if you do it right, you can still make this work. However, I absolutely do take your point that the human interaction is going to be something that will give you a slight edge but I genuinely believe it's a slight edge. If you do the, if you do the sale right, you, your focus is on being partner-centric. You look at the world through their eyes and contextually, all of your marketing is about helping them sell their stuff and help them grow their business and achieve their objectives. Then I don't see it as a handicap. In fact, what we're seeing is much higher get-through rates. We're seeing a 20% increase in production at least. In some cases, a doubling of production. And because day-to-day, if you're a road warrior, you see two to three customers a day. In the current environment, you can speak to six to eight. And when you're getting a 300% higher access rate than you were before, I think that'll level out. And you're using 
marketing well. And th- this is one of the other things that I have a real bugbear about because generally most technology marketing is pitiful, woeful, awful crap. It talks about the product. No one in the history of humanity has ever bought something off a data sheet. And vendors really need to up their game and focus on the end customer, focus on seeing the world through their eyes. And they have to really pay attention to what the partners want. But I think there are very few. What I'm most disappointed by with this crisis, it's been a massive opportunity for them to up their game. And I don't think many of them have because there's been something like a 67% increase in content on LinkedIn. But I would suggest that there's been about a 97% drop in quality. Your thoughts in terms of vendor marketing? I think the vendors, they don't get it. I mean, it's not, it's never been any different. I started just as the, as the channel started. The vendors don't see themselves as, as selling to the end user. And they have their marketing, there, which largely goes is techie-based. There's an expectation that the, the partners will translate that into a business solution, but typically they don't, you know, they just sort of pedal it forward. So nobody in the channel, with the possible exception of the good resellers, good MSPs, look at it from the end user client's perspective. It's not deal registration, which I know we talked about the last time, but deal registration is the antithesis of the interest of the customer in mind. It's the interest of the vendor in mind. Distribution isn't there to, to support and service the channel, the end user sales and the end user. They're there to support the vendor. You can't be selfish. There are three books that I urge everybody who's listening to this interview to read. The first one is called The Context Marketing Revolution by Matthew Sweezy. And he's a futurist based at Salesforce. And the second book is Small Data, The Tiny Clues That Uncover Huge Trends, and Marketing Rebellion, The Most Human Company Wins by Mark Schaefer. And sorry, Small Data is by Martin Lindstrom. And if you look at what the best vendors are doing, they are putting their messages into the world of the end customer. They are having interactions with the end customer focused very much on the middle of the funnel about helping them identify the root cause of their problems and solve problems. I mean, you've only got to look at HubSpot. If you want to see somebody that does it properly, then look at HubSpot. But the difficulty in my mind is that, again, looking at the channel specifically, is that sort of marketing is actually expensive because to produce the content and do it properly and professionally and then deliver it is expensive. And the channel partners, the smaller partners, aren't really in a position to be able to afford that. And the vendors don't do that for them. So you've got a bit of a hit and miss, Pete, there. But, okay. Um, on, you know. on that note, I work with a number of people at HubSpot, including people who run their channel, in, in fact, their top performers. And what we're finding, actually, is that by narrowing down the number of partners and focusing on that special forces unit, really working very closely with them to help them be wildly successful means that these guys are coming in at between 140 and 220% a target. 
And this is a tough market. Now, one of the things that's been really interesting is it's not expensive when you start filtering out the crap. Big data, I think, is another one of these ludicrous ideas. It's, it's a fabulous thing if you peddle big data solutions. But the reality is what you need to understand is why customers really buy. And what you need to look for are the little clues, the, the tiny bits of information that tell you what matters to the customer and where the real trends are. I, I think there is a fundamental misunderstanding in sales generally, in leadership, that people do not understand how human beings work. And when you stop trying to sell technology, when you stop focusing on your number and you get it right back down to the, the basics of why this human being is motivated to change, because that's all any of us ever sell. Every one of us, whether you're selling training, software, or sofas, you're selling change. And if you understand why people will be willing to change, why the pain of staying stuck is greater than the pain of change, then you can find their personal motivation to do it. And you don't need a massive pipeline. What you need is a quality pipeline that's well looked after. And you focus on the customer. And you spend all of your time when you're with the partners helping them understand the partner, have the right conversations about the right stuff in the right way at the right time. And I'm seeing this, uh, you know, this going on with my clients. You know, I've got clients at the moment who took maybe a two-week hiccup when this all kicked off. And now they're smashing it. They're bringing in six-figure deals. They are shortening sales cycles. People are bringing forward decisions, whether they're going direct or they're going through uh, partners, because they've taken the time to understand the human element. And that's what's missing. That's having the right relationship with your client, isn't it? I mean, you know, when it comes down to it, it's having a trusted relationship. They see you as a trusted advisor because you're not always trying to run product down the throat at the end of every month or the end of every quarter. And they'll, you know, they'll respond to that. I'm going to change your wording slightly. And I think they see you as a partner. Partners help each other get better. And what's really interesting about the most effective channel players is that they hold one another to account. Whether they're on the vendor side or the reseller side, they have a cadence of accountability. They are happy to have stand-up fights, but constructive conflict. They hold each other's feet to the fire. They agree up front what it is that each of them considers to be important in order to move the relationship forward. The problem I have with the trusted advisor idea is that it's you whispering in their ear. I think it's a two-way street. If I look at the best vendors, they are listening to their customers. And the other thing is that they're very clear about what their total addressable market is, but they only focus on their ideal customer. And that's a big difference. And that's driven by a lack of scarcity. Scarcity drives people to go after anything and everyone. So basically, if they have a pulse, and then they'll try and sell them something. The best vendors will not sell to people where they are not the right fit. Thoughts? My biggest challenge at the moment is, you know, I mean, I work with you know, smaller, by and large, smaller channel partners 
And we talk about a target market, ideal customer. And, you know, for most of them, they don't need a database of any more than at the extreme a thousand. They're not multinational. They're not, in, in most part, they're not national. So you say, well, all you need is 500 qualified, qualified in the context of, you know, that are your ideal customer as a database and let's work with those. Absolutely. And they sit down and they talk to me and they take that on board and then they get somebody punt them something that's got something automatic on LinkedIn that, you know, they can send out two and a half thousand invites a month. And you go, well, you don't need that. You've got this 500. And then, you know, you listen to some of the, the superstar American organizations that keep coming over and, you know, we can have a database of 30,000 and I can have 30,000 contacts on LinkedIn. You go, well, you only need 500. Not only is it more efficient and more effective, it's actually a darn sight cheaper to market to 500 than it is 5,000. What's really interesting, I've got a number of software clients, and one of them was getting, they were converting one in 1,200 demos. And this is another thing that I think really good vendors will work with their partners to stop. It's this premature rush to demo the product. I was speaking to a prospect only this morning, and their sales cycle, they were talking about having lots of customers and whatever. They're not customers. Virtually every one of their customers is someone who's not paying them. They're using the demo product, and then they spend 80%, 90% of their time chasing these people because they've gone to ground. You know, it's like they've gone into a witness protection program. A customer is someone who actually pays you money, and you owe them mm. a duty of care. A client is someone who pays you shitloads of money, and they bring their wealthy friends, and you owe them an even bigger duty of care. And the, the problem is that I think a lot of tech companies are in this race for market share and that it's being driven by a belief that they have to get funding. And one of the things that really gets right up my nose is the broken VC and private equity market. I think they are absolutely broken and corrupt. There are a few great ones out there, but the majority, they kill businesses routinely. I came across one situation not long ago where they killed the business because it had the temerity to make a profit so they couldn't fiddle the valuation my biggest shortcoming seven or eight years ago was i'd only ever worked for companies that built and grew and were organically grown and so you know with scc the guy who owned it who's now got a two and a half billion pound a year organization I mean, I'm not saying he hasn't taken funding, you know, some sort of loan and funding along the way, but he would never go to VC because it was his business. He wanted to grow a business with integrity, and it's what he leaves behind. And then I kind of move out of that environment where you know the guy who owns it makes the decisions. I work for him. I could ring him up and ask him for anything, and I get a yes or a no. But he cared. He cared about the customers. He cared about the people. And then you find yourself working for a VC-backed organization. And they don't care. What they care about, and it took me a while to catch on, was making money. So essentially, they want to put a penny in the slot, pull the handle, and they want more money to come out the bottom. And they will destroy along the way. The average return for a VC uh, private uh, private equity is 8%. Mm. They don't make money. There are investments even now that you can get a higher return than that. And it's a bust model. I think... If you look at the 220 model, private equity makes 2% of the overall fund as an annual management fee. 
and they get 20% of the carry, which is when they IPO or sell, they get 20% of whatever it is money they make then. And because they only need two or three, they spread the, uh, the fund across 30, 40, 50 companies in the hope that two or three make it. And then they're going to make their, their money back in spades. But I don't think it's a good model for investors. You know, the people who invest in those private equity funds, I think, are being ripped off. The investments themselves are being ripped off as well because they're being peddled a fiction. The idea, you only hear about the ones that make it. If you track private equity websites and uh, VC websites, the number of companies that are on there that suddenly disappear and are never spoken of again massively outweighs the ones that are still yeah. So, okay, let's wrap this up. In terms of how, what advice would you give to a growing technology company to take advantage of the opportunity the economy and COVID represents in order to ensure that they continue to grow? And if they do have to go for money, they're getting money as food, not oxygen. I think today, if, if they're looking to go through the channel, and I get asked this a lot, you know, in terms of, you know, we've got a product, we want to go out to MSPs, then it's exactly the same process as if I was looking to win new end user customers, is look at the partners, look at the ones that sell the products that complement what you're doing, approach the ones that, you know, have a good reputation in terms of being able to go out and sell, produce yourself a target list and go out and talk to them and sell them. And then they're the good quality people and then support them and support them at the exception of the people. So you, you don't have people jumping on the bandwagon, but that takes longer. The issue is that it's, you know, the, the, the actual, the build up to revenue takes longer, but the payback is a lot better. And then you know, if you need funding along the way, then, I'm no expert in funding, but there has to be better ways than taking the, the VC shilling and actually then having to do what you're told. There's a large MSP software company that recently got purchased by VCs and they're, they're stripping out the costs. And, you, you know, it used to be quite a cuddly, customer-centric organization. And at the moment, the customer-centric piece of it is being ripped out because they want to churn coins out the bottom. The guy, well, it's no secret to anybody that knows me, but you know, I, I work for Peter Rigby, who built what is now Rigby Group, and his his philosophy philosophy was to grow and own as he went along. So he didn't rate the business of of the profit. He was always reinvested, and at the point, I mean, I finished with him, which was a long time ago now. He hadn't had any significant money from outside, but we negotiated a deal for a thirty million pound loan with NatWest Bank. But we were trying to do business with NatWest, and we thought that maybe if we talked them into lending us some money, they might want to deal with us. And I'm sure he's had you know, funding along the way, but he's never lost control. It's his business. It's a reflection of him and his qualities and, and, and those sorts of things. And, and that, that is the way that I think, I'd go so far as to say the British way, but it's that kind of love of a company and building an identity and it being your baby as opposed to, you know, trying to get to a point where you can get somebody to throw lots of money at it and then get raped for a couple of years and then either go out of business or, or IPO, I mean, whatever it happens to be. But it's having control. 
I think for larger companies that may be a bit further on, my advice is look at your sales organization, both direct and indirect. Take a blank sheet of paper and ask yourself this question. If it was the 1st of January 2001, which of my salespeople, which of my managers, which of my channel partners would I still want to be on our payroll or on our roster? And strip out the ones that you wouldn't. Focus on the ones that you would. Make sure that you're building a really strong support infrastructure to help them build pipeline. Move all of the pipeline that's currently in place over to those special forces partners and those top performing salespeople and help them disqualify out the, uh, the deadwood quickly. Help them be wildly successful and then use all the money that's left over from the um, people that you've let go, uh, the partners that you were uh, previously supporting in order to continue to recruit and build more people like your A-player salespeople and your A-player partners. And it takes someone who is incredibly brave to do that. But if you do that, then you will be operating within Price's Law. And if you're not familiar with Price's Law, it's basically 80 20 the top 20% and the bottom 20%. The bottom 20% of your customers, your salespeople, are the ones that bring you the worst deals, stiff you on fees, pay you late, and create the most problems. The top 20% are the ones that bring you the highest profit, highest quality uh, customers and deals. Now, Price's Law states that the square root of the number of people in your organization will generate 50% of your revenues or your production. So if you have 10 salespeople, three of them will produce 50%. If you have 100 distributors, 10 will produce 50%. If you have 10,000 partners, 100 will produce 50%. That represents a massive amount of waste. If, if you've got 50 salespeople, 43 of them bring in 50%. Give that 50% pipeline resource to the top seven. Help them be massively successful and then concentrate on recruiting more people like them. Within seven, eight months, you'll be back up to the same level of revenues, but your profits will be significantly higher. And then you can reinvest. You will spend more quality time with your customers. But it's going to take someone who's brave to do that. So if any of you are interested in having that conversation with either me or with Paul, then please get in touch. Paul, can you give people your contact details? My email is paul at sellerly.co.uk and my mobile phone number is 07764-247-444. And I'm always welcome, happy to speak to whomever. And I have to say, with all of that that Mark has just said, I just assumed that most people did that anyway. <laughs> yeah, as if. So my contact details are mcauchi at sandler.com. My mobile is 07515 and you can get both of us on LinkedIn. In the meantime, Paul, thank you. Thank you. So if you've enjoyed this conversation or you've got questions, please like, comment, share, and subscribe. Get in touch. And in the meantime, happy selling. Stay safe. Be well. Bye-bye.